to the 449th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Stephen Collier and Andrew Lakoff, co-authors of the new book, The Government of Emergency, Vital Systems, Expertise, and the Politics of Security. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Don't wait too long. We're wrapping up the regular COVID calls episodes on March 16th. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center in the United States, 957,633 people have lost their lives from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Falnicia Adams, age 49, was a mother, loving sister, and dedicated worker. This was written by Gary Miles and appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer July 19, 2020. Her mother found out that Falnicia Adams was in Philadelphia only because her oldest daughter called and broke the news. I wasn't going to tell, said younger sister Shawnee, who knew of the plot. Miss Adams left her home in South Florida for the Philly skyline all those years ago because she wanted to live in the big city. So she followed her older sister, Sonia. The plan worked. She got good jobs, made tons of friends, danced up a storm, and had a beautiful daughter. Miss Adams, age 49, died on Saturday, May 16, 2020, of the coronavirus. She was so full of life, said Shawnee. We loved to hang out together. She loved to dance and dress up. She said, don't tell mom when she left, and I knew she would make it fine. Born as the middle of three sisters in 1971 in Orangeburg, South Carolina, Miss Adams moved with her family to Pahokee, Florida when she was young. She enrolled at Bethune-Cookman University after high school to study hotel management. She stayed there for two years until Philly beckoned. Once she established herself in her new home and explained to her folks why she left, Ms. Adams worked at the old Bellevue Stratford Hotel and then the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She made friends easily, and they had all kinds of fun. Ms. Adams loved to drive. She learned to navigate Philadelphia by cruising the streets, and she often drove a carload of friends to the Atlantic City casinos. When the sisters took trips, Shawnee eventually came to Philadelphia, too, and arranged their yearly birthday parties, Ms. Adams would usually be the chauffeur. They went to Ocean City, Maryland on January 5th, 2020 for Ms. Adams' 49th birthday. A fashionable dresser throughout her life, Ms. Adams loved to mix and match outfits for just the right look. Her glasses, before she switched contacts, even matched her clothes. Her favorite look was leopard print, and she had shoes, a bedspread, and curtains of it. She danced with pom-poms on her high school drill team and then to golden oldies in a line dance as an adult. 
She was the first one to rise each morning and was often dressed and ready to go while her sisters were still yawning. Her daughter, Anisha, was born 10 years ago, and the two were peas in a pod. This story again appeared in 2020. Ms. Adams fell ill with the virus in late April 2020 and was hospitalized, but she and her sisters were able to talk on the phone every day for most of that time. We were roommates, it's, we were roommates as kids all through high school, and we supported each other, Shawnee said. She was special. In addition to her sisters and daughter, Ms. Adams is survived by her parents, three nieces and aunt, and other relatives. The family held a private memorial for her. The obituary of Falnesia Adams, who died in 2020 in May of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guests. Stephen Collier is Professor of City and Regional Planning at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of Post-Soviet Social, Neoliberalism, Social Modernity, and Biopolitics, and with Andrew Lakoff, the co-author of The Government of Emergency, Vital Systems, Expertise, and the Politics of Security. Andrew Lakoff is my second guest. He is professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, where he also directs the Center on Science, Technology, and Public Life. He's the author of Pharmaceutical Reason, Knowledge and Value in Global Psychiatry, which appeared in 2006, Unprepared, Global Health in a Time of Emergency, 2017, and the aforementioned book, The Government of Emergency. I'm really pleased to have both members of this writing team here today, Andrew Lakoff and Stephen Collier, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott. Let me start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there right now. Um, Andrew, let me start with you on that. It looks like maybe having some audio. Issues with Andrew. Stephen, let me start with you on that question while we sort out what's what's going on with with Andrew. Sounds good. I'm in Berkeley, California, and I guess like everywhere else, we've come off of our Omicron wave. Um, I'm at the university here, and on Monday we're going to be lifting indoor mask requirements. So that's a big threshold for the first time in a couple of years. Just working out a couple of technical things here with Andrew. Okay, um, so things at, at Berkeley have been pretty aggressive in sense of infection control throughout. Is that is that fair to say? Definitely. Um, we came back in the fall, but in a completely masked um, state, and have continued that way uh, up up through this week. I would say it's been very, very conservative in terms of um, opening things back up, particularly the university, but both also the local county and city um, authorities have been very conservative about coming back. The numbers in the Bay Area have been, for some time, I think, considerably lower than other metropolitan areas of the state. Has, has that trend been continuing in terms of case rates, infections? Well, I think I think we had a we had a big 
uh, wave with Omicron. And I think it was, a, it was the first time when we had numbers that sort of looked like a lot of other places. I think a lot of our other um, bumps up were much lower than other metropolitan areas. Um, but the Omicron wave was, was I think, more similar um, in terms of its shape to some of the others. But we're, but we're like other places way back down again. So I've been asking guests if they would share a personal memory of the pandemic, the impossible question yeah. because of the way this pandemic works. But I wonder, is there something that really stands in for this time for you? Well, so I, I actually have a good memory of the pandemic. <laughs> I guess a lot of people have bad ones, but I, I wanted to share a good one, which is in uh, June of 2021 last year, it was the moment when you know we the vaccines were pretty widely available and we were all double vaxxed and we still had this idea that the way this was going to go is that you know we we got vaccinated and, and vac vaccines became widespread and then we we're going to be sort of done with the thing and we we planned um, a trip to the east coast at that time uh, we had some family business in philadelphia and went to new york where we lived for um, a couple decades my family and i and uh, we um, had heard from friends during the pandemic what a disaster in New York was and how everything was closed down and it was incredibly depressing. And we happened to land in New York um, the the week that they opened everything back up again at this moment where everyone was under this, I guess, illusion that vaccination was going to sort of end the thing for us. And we just had this absolutely fabulous time when, um, you know, people were just surging back out onto the streets and New York was sort of its old self for a bit. And then, of course, by the time we got back to Berkeley, California, um, the you know the, the news about Delta was already beginning to indicate that that was a bit rather than being the end, it was a very brief window in what was going to be a much longer haul. Uh, thank you for sharing that, and and I think one so you got on a plane and flew to New York. Yeah, we flew flew to Philadelphia and then upstate and I mean, then to New York City. Yeah, I mean that in of itself. It, it was, I mean, what a what a leap, right? To take people back to that moment, the idea that you would get on a plane and feel comfortable doing doing so. It's a, a little window in that. I didn't get on a plane at that time, but I do remember distinctly doing things like going to the garden store and like walk in the aisles of, of like, feeling like, oh, I can do this again. I can go somewhere and like buy dirt and plants and like do sort of normal things. And... That window didn't stay open very long, did it? Nope, did not. <laughs> Andrew, let me bring you back in. Uh, I think we've ironed out any technical problems there. Just We were just chatting about um, pandemic experience. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there? Um, I'm uh, in South Pasadena on the eastern edge of Los Angeles. Um, I think you know we're, as in the, much of the rest of the country, um, beginning to normalize things. I just got a email today from our provost saying that masks are going to be optional next week in our classes. Uh, so it seems like, um, you know, the, the Omicron surge has ebbed and people are starting to open up. Andrew, you were one of the first guests that I had on COVID calls. I had you on April 1st, 2020, and just take you back to that moment briefly. Um, the number of deaths reported on that day was 4,542, but I think the important thing to note is that it was up from a previous number the day before, 3,416, and that rate of increase was just absolutely terrifying to people, but April 1st, is to me, is an almost unimaginable time now. 
That's right. I mean, I, I remember it pretty clearly. And it just in, in terms of uh, our lives here in Southern California, it was very soon after uh, schools had shut down, perhaps for one week or two weeks. And, you know, we had our kids in, in the house um, in school on Zoom. And so I had to move to the garage to attend the, the COVID call. Um, but we, I wasn't yet accustomed to things like, you know, having a Zoom conversation. And, and I remember um, looking at the background uh, I had set up in the garage and, and the, you know, there was boxes and, and, and brooms and, you know, an unused air conditioner. Um, and it's, you know, hopefully it's not easily accessible on the web. Um, but, but I've since then kind of learned about how to you know, put my books in the right order and so on and set things up on the web. So things have gotten much more, we've gotten much more used to this world, but it was very early on. And, and certainly we had no idea how much longer we were going to be in this kind of situation. Uh, I don't remember that part of the conversation. I remember it being a really interesting conversation, but I think it's that's a really interesting detail. Your game has upped. I'm looking in the background there. That's right. Green, Southern California any, greenery. Beautiful. I don't see any yeah. air conditioners. I don't see anything like that at all. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you both here to talk about new work. Um, your book, The Government of Emergency, Vital Systems, Expertise, and the Politics of Security. And... Um, Stephen, let me start with you on this. Uh, I guess my first question is, you know, what inspired you to take on this project? Which in some ways, I mean, it's it's a revision of material that people have think they have worked with for a long time. You found new things in the archives of American civil defense and emergency preparedness that some of us who worked in this for a long time, I, I found I'm still working through the book, but I found a lot of new things in here, which I really appreciated. So, so what inspired you to do the work? So, I mean, I guess the the project started a long time ago in the aftermath of um, the attacks of September 11th, but really uh, not so much in the aftermath of the attacks as in the aftermath of the response to the attacks. And I think that one of the things that we were really struck by um, as people who had not up to that point been working on um, domestic security and emergency management was how quickly uh, a, a new sort of apparatus and set of understandings around domestic security took shape in the United States. And so you had a very um, rapid bipartisan consensus around creating a new federal department of homeland security into which a bunch of disparate things got moved. Um, you had this new paradigm of critical infrastructure protection, which, you know, if you had really been paying attention to discussions in the federal government in the late 90s, you would have known that that wasn't totally new, but it suddenly became this very, you know, central paradigm for um, thinking about emergency preparedness and requirements for response. Um, you had the de definition of a set of um, national preparedness goals um, around a, a, a set of different events. And so, you know, we, we were interested in understanding how it, how it was that among some um, up to that point fairly obscure set of um, experts and officials who think about these things, that had become a kind of taken for granted way of thinking about emergencies and potential catastrophes. And so I guess, I mean, there, there, there's a long um, story that maybe we'll get into, but I would say just briefly, um, we sort of started digging back into the history of this. and. Um, we landed initially on some of the familiar sites that have been well studied in the history of civil defense, um, particularly, you know, the activities of the Federal Civil Defense Administration and then the more recent history of FEMA, things that you have written about. 
Um, but we also landed on a set of agencies that really were totally obscure and had not been treated in um, the historical literature that weren't so much focused on this question of you know, immediate response to an emergency and sort of local planning for response and recovery and relief, but um, were focused instead on this question of the vulnerability of systems like um, power systems, um, systems of medical um, resource distribution and response, information systems, financial systems, et cetera, the vulnerability of those systems to catastrophic disruption. And so um, that sort of launched us into a very unexpected trajectory of research, trying to figure out um, how, you know, where, where that set of understandings um, came from. And it, it took us back to mobilization planning during World War II, um, to the Great Depression and economic management and so on. And so that was sort of the, the trajectory into the, the project. Andrew, let me just bring you in on that and, and talk about um, the Office of Emergency Preparedness particularly, which is, uh, again, as Stephen was saying, it's one of these, you can really get lost in the alphabet of various civil defense. And it's all been sort of lumped under civil defense. But once you, you start to work through it patiently, as you have, it's actually, they can be organizations of quite different sizes, and they have very different mandates. And so I've sometimes wondered, too, and reading this, it made me think again that it probably made sense that the government wasn't too eager for people to unravel, to know all the names and all the players. And those acronyms did some sort of secrecy work, the sort of hidden in plain sight nature of bureaucracy, but that didn't dissuade you. You really went into OEP particularly. Tell us about that agency. Yeah, well, you know, the Office of Emergency Preparedness um, was, we might think of it as one of the um, pre-preliminaries to what's now the F FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, and and um, it, it was around during the the early to, to late 1960s, really, and and we um, were actually into the early 70s, and we were particularly interested in in an office within it called the the Systems Evaluation Division, um, which was focused on the the issues that Stephen was just discussing of how to assess the vulnerability of networks, oil networks, communication networks, that kind of thing, um, because we were seeing sort of precursors of the the current critical infrastructure protection paradigm. Um, and we wanted to dig even further back um, and figure out, you know, where did this come from? And it turned out not to really come from civil defense as we had imagined, but rather to, to have um, inherited the legacy of uh, defense mobilization agencies like the National Security Resources Board in the immediate aftermath of World War II and then the Office of Defense Mobilization during the 1950s. And so actually, in, it turned out that a lot of the core empirical work of the book was focused on um, plans and preparations that were made in the 1950s by this Office of Defense Mobilization for a future nuclear war, um, which led into the the later um, organizations that, that that you've just mentioned. Give me an example of the kinds of problems that they were trying to solve. What does it mean to mobilize in nuclear war from the vantage point of these planners working in the 50s and early 60s? Yeah, well, one of the things that they realized in the in the early 50s was this was not going to be like a previous war, um, and that you know what what they needed to prepare for was not necessarily the the, the industrial ramp up to producing lots of munitions uh, for a long war along the lines of World War II, but rather um, to be able to to recover um, in the in the aftermath of a massive future attack. And so they, they they sought to plan for that future attack and and ensure the continuous functioning of what they saw as the essential systems of the American 
economy and government. Um, and so they laid out um, schemas for how government would operate in the aftermath of such uh, an event and, and also um, ways of trying to do things like um, distribute outside of concentrated areas of vulnerabilities in cities some of the core uh, economic functions of, of, of the economy. Um, so there were a, lo a lot of detailed studies of how resources circulate in an economy and how you would try to diminish the vulnerability of that resource circulation to a future nuclear attack. And so when they used a, a concept, you talk about vulnerability, Stephen, um, what was their model of vulnerability? It probably changed over time too, but, but was it uh, vulnerability literally to, to blast, to like nuclear blast and radiation? Was it vulnerability to other kinds of follow-on effects that they had to imagine and model from nuclear attack? What were they, what were they picturing there? Yeah, well, um, I mean, def definitely um, they were involved in modeling physical vulnerability. And what, what would the effects of blast on certain structures be? What would the effects of radiation on human bodies be? Um, but I think what we found most interesting is that the real focus was on system vulnerability. Um, so it wasn't just that there would be individual um, facilities that would be damaged or a certain number of people who would be killed or injured or sickened, um, but that there would be systems that would be disrupted. And just to give um, one concrete example that's very relevant to the, the topic here, um, we, we spend quite a bit of time in the book looking at the way that they assessed uh, health resource requirements in the 1950s. And so it, you know, it was partially a matter of you, know, you do a, a simulation of a bomb detonation and you try to understand the number of people who are going to be killed, the number of people who are going to be sickened and need medical care. Um, but you're also going to do an assessment of how much medical personnel you have. You're going to do an assessment of um, damage to various kinds of resources. Um, are you going to have um, certain kinds of medicines, um, certain kinds of surgical supplies, and so on? Um, what kinds of facilities are you going to have to administer those things in? Um, but then beyond that, um, a whole bunch of uh, interrelated systems problems. So, for example, are you going to be able to transport um, medicines to the places where you need them? from the places where they're stockpiled, which turned out to be a really big problem, actually. It wasn't just the absolute um, volumes that were available nationally, but whether you would be able to get them um, to the right place in a, in a post-attack environment. Um, what would happen to production systems? Would you be able to produce uh, medical supplies in the aftermath of an attack? That also proved to be, um, in their models, a major problem. So you can see that there's a whole set of questions there Absolutely. that once you hit um, COVID become ab you know an absolute day-to-day um, -day issues that um, you know public health officials and other officials at all levels of government are thinking about and dealing with. Who should I be picturing here, Andrew? Am I, if, am I thinking here of, of, Robert, of rooms full of Robert McNamara's <laughs> and, and with the skinny ties and, and charts and diagrams and plenty of data that they can pull from wherever they can get it? And then they're writing. Well, I mean, Lee Clark has been pretty critical of this kind of work. He says they create fantasy documents. I don't think he's talking about OEP specifically in his work, but who's in the room? 
Yeah, I mean, think of a kind of less charismatic Robert McNamara, um, you know, with, 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 <laughs> um, but, but a lot of, a lot of um, guys, uh, you know, with degrees in, in engineering and math um, and economics. Um, and, and, you know, some of them very interested in early computing technology. Uh, and so indeed, um, figuring out ways that you might simulate the effects of a future disaster uh, on critical resources. Um, and then trying to figure out how to spit out that kind of data, you know, in these, with these room-sized computers um, and printing and, you know, and printing system, very very basic printing system. So you do have, you know, obscure offices. Um, eventually, you know, the, the systems evaluation division and the, what was called the the uh, National Resource Evaluation Center were actually housed underneath Mount Weather, um, which was the um, facility near Washington D.C. that the government was supposed to use in the event of a nuclear war. Uh, a, a huge bunker, um, and so they, they actually house this computing center inside the bunker. Um, but yeah, it, it is sort of the the, the stereotypical nineteen fifties technocratic drudgery uh, imagery that that you invoked. And when you were, let me just ask you sort of a wonky historian question: When you're working through these through these documents, and I'm curious if some of these have just been recently declassified, or or have, you know, I'm I'm wondering like how you came up. Tell me how you got the stuff, I guess, in a sense. But the, but my other question is, when you read through the lines or when you try to understand who was in the room, and you gave a kind of a, a portrait of that, what else do you find there? I mean, what else were they interested in? You talk about vulnerable systems, but I mean, it's all sorts of other aspects of what they must have been imagining. Continuity of education, uh, religious life. Um, you know, because, And the reason I ask this is because the disaster, the kind of research that I often do, that's also being funded out of federal civil defense, but it's going to anthropologists and sociologists to model the social and psychological impacts of attacks. So I'm curious if those kinds of concerns are also discussed in the in the papers or the documents and archives that you were consulting. I mean, one uh, relevant point of reference here, which connects a little bit to Andy's comments about who is in the room, is that a lot of the people um, we were tracking and who were doing this work in the 1950s were actually people who had worked in mobilization planning during World War II. And so they had in mind uh, a, a, recent, a very recent experience of a total war in which they had been engaged in what they saw as a heroic project of managing national resources to produce arms and <laughs> mobilize the country to defeat the Nazis and um, the, the, and Japan. And so I think that they, you know, and so, and, and so this was a, a really distinctive moment in American history. I mean, we're not a, a country with, you know, deeply embedded planning, economic planning institutions at the national level. And so this is a, a very kind of unique experience. And so I think that part of what they had in mind was the idea, and, and it's also useful to remember that um, the, there was a great struggle um, in the early years of World War II and in the, the lead up to US entry into World War II to actually accumulate the kind of power and authority that you would need to engage in that kind of mobilization problem planning. There was huge resistance um, from conservatives um, who didn't want to yield this kind of authority to technocratic planners. Um, and so I think that one of the important things that they had in mind was that in a future war, there was going to be a sim similar kind of struggle. Um, in other words, that there would be a, a need for a kind of heroic effort 
to recreate these planning capacities and the ability of the government to act in this really exceptional way to preserve democracy. So I think that that's one of the things that's that's very powerful there. And I think that's, you know, part of the way that this story has been told um, in the historical literature through people like McNamara is that, you know, he's this kind of evil guy who is in the, or I, I don't know, um, banal, banally evil guy or something who, you know, was in the air war and figuring out how to optimize massacre and so on. Um, and this is a, a somewhat different set of characters who were really concerned about the ability of the government to sort of mobilize resources um, to, you know, um, run the economy, but also to save lives in the aftermath of a war. So I think it's a, it, there is a different ethos there. Different That's interesting. Kind of, um, yeah, I think if I can throw one one additional yeah, comment yeah. to that, if you, we we ended up going even further back before the World War II mobilization to the New Deal, and so a lot of the economists that Stephen is alluding to um, that were experts in understanding the flow of national resources had developed that expertise in relationship to how to manage the consequences of the New Deal. You know, one of the earliest periods in which a number of economists began to be very actively involved in government policy. Um, so that ethos, uh, you know, and, and almost a welfareist ethos is also part of the, you know, what, what these economists mm. brought to bear in thinking about the post-war situation. I mean, it's really fascinating point, Stephen, that you're, you're pointing to this problem of accumulating the power to deal with federalism. Basically, I had Don Kettle on a couple of weeks ago to talk about his new book about federalism. This is not a new problem, obviously, in American life. But it is really important, and I appreciate you sort of taking us back to that time. We would assume today, well, we would have assumed before COVID that in a national, in an emergency of national scale, that even though we might not know who they were, the federal government would have an office with people like this, and that their plans would then be able to be mobilized. Um, but they had to, they had to, that was part of their modeling too, I guess. I mean, uh, let me draw you out on that a little bit more, um, Andrew. Let me ask you this first. I mean, did they also have to like try to, um, uh, you know, work through plans of like how are you going to get mayors in two different cities to share to do mutual aid? How are you going to get governors in a region to coordinate? I mean, the sort of shared governance or mutual aid model that people talk about it a lot. Like, have you ever actually watched it work? It's it's problematic. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that was actually a, a critical problem of, for reflection by these planners. And, you know, there's kind of two different facets of that. One is the the military versus civilian side, um, which was often debated. And there were military folks in there that thought this was going to you know, martial law would have to be declared and, and, and the military would have to take control. But there was also a kind of federal versus local dimension. Um, and, and the question was, how would you coordinate? You know, how would you create a small office that was capable of putting into place existing plans that would, you know, enable the coordination across these multiple scales? Um, one one story that we tell in, in uh, one of our chapters is about a, an exercise um, called Operation Alert, held in 1955, in which President Eisenhower w w was was faced with a scenario of a massive Soviet attack, and um, suddenly, to the surprise of those who had designed the exercise, decided to declare martial law really on the grounds that he, he thought there was going to be total chaos and that you, one wouldn't be able to depend on localities uh, to, to coordinate with the federal government to deal with the aftermath of the attack. Uh, and, and, and that declaration of martial law proved hugely controversial and led to a strong effort by the, the planners that we're describing to figure out in much more detail how you would indeed, without declaring martial law, create an orderly system of response um, in this future scenario.
Let me let me ask you a follow up on that, Stephen, about expertise, because the way you've described it, I mean, you have this office and then an office within the office, the um, the systems. So I'm going to get my systems uh, evaluation division, systems yeah, evaluation later. division yeah. in the uh, right. So um, rooms within rooms of experts who are then having to imagine what how how will their plans get implemented and I, and the reason i'm asking this cuz cuz your book is a you describe it as a genealogy which i really like the use of that term in this in this regard the a genealogy of how we get to an emergency management system and of course that means there's people at the end of of that line and i don't know did they know who those people were going to be who did they imagine were going to be enacting carrying out um, the various steps that they might have already been planning for back in Washington. Um, well, I mean, the, the, it's, I mean, I think there's a generally generally an interesting question about what they they thought the purpose of some of the models were. Um, I think part of the answer is that they were advocates within the government um, for taking certain kinds of steps. So it isn't even necessarily that you know they thought they were you know here's a blueprint and someday someone's going to pick this thing up in the event of an emergency and go through steps one, two, three, four, five. Um, but they were engaged in persuasion within the government itself. And I think you see this still today, you know, I mean, with respect to pandemic preparedness, for example, you have a certain set of people both inside and outside the government, which was the case at the time too, um, who really think we ought to be investing more in um, preparedness, who think we ought to be you know, laying, laying plans for how federal arrangements are going to work, et cetera. And so I think that part of the answer is that they, they were just engaged in a kind of advocacy um, for this sort of thing. Um, I guess the other point to make is that, you know, for the actors we are talking about, I mean, obviously in civil defense, which you've worked on, the story is a little bit different because you're thinking about local administrations, what the police department is going to do. Um, but really, the the actors that we were looking at were thinking about the very height of executive authority right. in a future emergency. In other words, it was really like, what is what is the president actually going? You know, at at the moment when it it seems that an attack is imminent or missiles are on the way, you know, what there were literally checklists. You know, what are the first fifty things that you do, and then. Um, branching off from those executive actions, a whole series of things that a agency heads would in turn do mm. um, to enact emergency authority, um, to set a set of various kinds of plans in motion, activate the emergency sites like Mount Weather that Andy was talking about. So it really, they really were planning for the operation of the executive branch of government under emergency conditions in a future national catastrophe. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls and talking today about the new book, The Government of Emergency, Vital Systems, Expertise, and the Politics of Security with Stephen Collier and Andrew Lakoff. So early in the pandemic, Andrew, the Defense Production Act. So there was a kind of a moment early in the pandemic, you both remember well, it was sort of like a Cold War moment of education for the public. And these kinds of questions we've just been talking about, all of a sudden people were like, oh, can we can we do that? How does that work? We need to get ventilators in a place and we it doesn't. And the Defense Production Act, there was a whole raft of news stories for about two weeks about that and whether or not Trump would uh, would invoke it. I'm assuming at that moment, both of you are on the phone or on the Zoom or your heads were tingling because you talk about that. And I'm sort of curious, I guess uh, like my question is, what did you think about that 
that moment in time when all of a sudden we reached back and grabbed that and how it, the actors that you write about, how did they imagine it or what did they think in terms of, you know, federal power to surge materials to a place in the aftermath of a disaster like a nuclear attack? Yeah, I mean, the, as I recall, the context of the Defense Production Act is 1950. So it's the Korean War era. Um, and so it wasn't even you know, for a nuclear war per se, but for, for a conventional war at that time. But I think it was kind of taken for granted not long after World War II that there would be a, a massive federal role in shaping how production worked toward, you know, making sure that the, the military had enough munitions to, 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 to mobilize for a war. Um, but it's, you know, that act remained on the books and not much debated or thought about over the following 70 years. Um, and then suddenly in, in the early stages of COVID, it was raised, you know, we could have manufacturers produce more ventilators. We could, you know, um, you know, make sure that vaccines are produced more efficiently by directing productions in certain production in certain ways. And it was actually some, somewhat surprising from that perspective that the Trump administration didn't really take much advantage of it. And it, it there was another moment, um, in, early in the Biden administration where those, um, experts really, I think, took much more active hold of the powers of the, the DPA um, to take action. And so it's more of a sign of what, you know, at this stage of, you know, what competent response at the federal level looks like to an emergency situation and what kind of tools do you have at hand um, from, from various pieces of our history. One Stephen, of the interesting, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but I, yeah. one of the interesting um, notes about COVID and the DPA is that it really does seem like more than anything else that happened since 1950, COVID is the kind of event that these planners imagined federal authorities would have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that there's no other event that you can think about in which there were resource demands everywhere in the country all right. at the same time. You have a, you know, a, a natural disaster on the Gulf Coast or in California, and there, there are going to be some local shortages, but it might not be presenting these sort of na national resource management problems. But all of a sudden with COVID, everybody needed ventilators and everybody needed um, different kinds of medical supplies. And so you really had, I mean, again, more, more than any other event since these um, powers were created by federal legislation, this seemed like a moment when they were really required, where you really needed to think about allocation and prioritization over national space. Well, let me stay with that, Stephen, for just a second. So um, since you brought us up to COVID, I mean, then the descendants of Office of Emergency Preparedness, the, the names of the offices maybe had changed, the Systems Evaluation Division, is that in FEMA? Is that in HHS? Where do we find when it was needed? I mean, I, I think this analogy is a really powerful one. And you're right. When else have we had every emergency operations center in America activated? I don't think so. Where, where, had, where was the center of that kind of thinking that you're writing about in the book? Where had that moved to in the government by 2020? Well, Andy should um, talk about this with respect to COVID because it's really his area. But I mean, one of the points that we make is that um, beginning in the 1960s, it gets diffused. And so, you know, in, in its origins, this was something that was really focused in these mobilization planning agencies that were again, thinking about national resource management and the establishment of federal executive authority over the national resources of the, of the country as a whole 
in the event of a nuclear war, but but nuclear war kept not happening. Um, and all these other events did happen, like there were hurricanes and earthquakes and um, pandemic outbreaks, et cetera. And so you have a bunch of other federal departments, including today HHS, but then FEMA and DHS, et cetera. Um, but one could also point to the Department of Treasury and others um, in which similar kinds of techniques and also similar um, powers of resource management diffused. But Andy should speak to the specific case of health preparedness. Yeah, and that I mean, it's right that it actually existed in various places, and that was probably one source of the very fragmented federal response we saw to COVID. Um, so you have the Health and Human Service Department, which has an office for um, uh, for the Assistant of, uh, Secretary of Preparedness um, that has some of these functions um, of developing pandemic preparedness plans. Um, some of that goes over to the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, so, of course, a lot of the emergency operations work was done over at CDC. But then there's stuff that happens very importantly within DHS, this relatively recent you know, 20-year-old entity that's kind of a hodgepodge of multiple different kinds of security organizations. But um, if you take this example of critical infrastructure protection policy, there's an office in DHS that's charged with that. And that's the place from which the policy that led to its essential workers' um, protections, or not, I should say non-protections, but the, but the idea that there, were, there, were, there was a category of essential workers uh, who, who were supposed to stay on the job so that our vital systems could continue to operate during the emergency, that policy and, and, and the, the naming of the sectors that the essential workers were in was led by DHS. So it existed in many different places, and there wasn't a single coordinative office to deal with all of the different problems. Is that a factor, um, Andy, of just the passage of time and just the evolution of government, particularly after September 11? Or is that a deeper problem that maybe even the the people you were writing about earlier in the 60s sort of maybe always knew was was there, that the actual functioning of government was going to, in the in the disaster, it was going to be ultimately some fog of war, some fog of disaster, and you wouldn't know how it would play out. Well, I think they were really attentive to the many different agencies that would have to be involved in responding to, in that case, in the 1950s, a future nuclear war. And so they did have quite detailed um, organizational charts of who would be in charge of what and how they would communicate with one another. Um, it may be that we we lacked that, or at least it wasn't functional for a pandemic. Oh, yeah, we lost um, that. But you know, in terms of you know, where it came from, I think it is there is a gradual evolution in response to prior events. So you can think of DHS as a response to 9-11 um, or the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness within the Health and Human Services branch as a response to the threat of avian flu. Um, but all of these kind of offices evolve um, in in the contingency of a specific seemingly urgent problem at the time. Um, and then 10, 20 years later, that's what you've got when something that wasn't expected comes along. One other um, point on this that was central to the book that it may be interesting to mention here is indeed, you know, the, the planners we looked at were, were very much concerned about the idea that there were, you know, different agencies that would have to work together. Also, the federal and local government issue, um, and the fact that you would have you know, thousands or tens and thousands of government employees who would be doing something that wasn't the thing that they spent most of their time doing. And so they were very much preoccupied with this question of how it is that you prepare these officials and um, in, in government to do these jobs and to coordinate across these lines. Um, and one of the answers that they came up with to try to deal with this problem, which we think is um, sort of uh, has its origins in the, the material that we looked at, is 
the scenario-based exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that you, you, you get all these people who are, who are not normally interacting with each other, who are normally thinking about you know, the regular operations of whatever department they're in and not about emergency response. And you get them to act out an emergency and to actually, you know, not, not just the agency heads, but you know, potentially thousands and thousands of people um, to just test, test out those relationships and to give people a different kind of corporeal and haptic um, experience of what an emergency situation would be like. But I think we're, we're still very much in a similar situation, which is that when our structure of emergency government is such that we require coordination across jurisdictions, across agency lines, et cetera, and we're constantly failing <laughs> to do sufficient um, preparedness in, in the sense of giving people like the, the right experience and the right understanding of what their emergency function is going to be like for these things to really go off well. And then there's the point that Andy um, notes, which is that every emergency always turns out to be different and we're always sort of preparing for the prior one. <laughs> That's a fascinating insight again about sort of, and I've been puzzling over this myself about the um, the tension between you know building structures and checklists versus yeah. spending your time on training people in sort of the sociology of an institution and how people are going to interact. I mean, I, and so I mean, I'm here at at KAIST in South Korea, and and they have a center for disaster. Um, preparedness here, and um, they have a, a VR, an augmented reality theater. It's beautiful, and it hasn't been working the last couple of years. I just got a tour of it recently, and it was like I had this sort of like Cold War like mo- moment. I was like, wow, because it you put on the goggles, and so the idea is you bring in everybody who works in a particular government office, and they go through a simulation of something together, hmm. and they run a scenario, right? Just like you were saying, Stephen. Um, and I, I'm just fascinated by it, you know, in, in, cause the idea is that if they go through it, then there's a muscle memory that gets built there kind of as individuals. And, and there's also attention paid to how the team will work together. Mm-hmm. But one part of that is easily fundable. It's equipment. Another part of that is often hard to fund, and I think in the American context, and I'm moving towards a question here, uh, Andrew, which is, you know, teaching people to get along in the middle of a disaster, what does that even mean? Like, how, how does teamwork work, soft skills kinds of things? And there's no, I don't know, there's no X factor for how you make something like that work in the middle of a hyper-partisan environment with social media and everything else that goes along with it. So I guess my question again is, is like, did you find anything in the, in the book or anything you reflect on now about this tension in, in the world of planning between sort of hard things, structural things, or sort of hard economic things versus things that are gonna be more intangibles that are gonna be the kinds of things that historians and sociologists would be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I guess my, one, one point I'd wanna make in response to that is, is what, our, what our genealogical impulse was in the book, which it was in part to ask the question, you know, how did we end up with this kind of pretty dysfunctional system in which there's a very, you know, a very small number of people, you know, who are in a federal office who are who are supposed to be able to, at the, you know, and the onset of an emergency collaborate with a whole range of different other offices right. at different scales, um, and and that's supposed to function well, and and so we devise 
tools like simulations um, and scenario exercises to, to try to make that work. Um, typically, it doesn't work in, in the end. Um, and, and one thing that we went back to was the period in the 1930s um, when um, the, the executive branch was trying to figure out, well, you know, how can we manage, um, you know, a future war, massive war emergency? Um, and, 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 and then in the aftermath of World War II, thinking about a future nuclear catastrophe within the confines of the traditions of American federalism and small government um, and not build a whole new centralized government agency that would, you know, employ people permanently to deal with events that might or might not occur. Um, and so this, this kind of semi-dysfunctional system was built as a response to that, to that problem. Um, and, you know, we're still trying to work through, you know, how to, how to make it work, but it's, it's, it is worth remembering where it came from. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls and talking about the new book, Discussing the Government of Emergency with Stephen Collier and Andrew Lakoff. We have a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to ask you the kind of question that when you give talks invariably about this book, I think we can go do things like that again in the United States um, to emergency managers. Are they going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, they're going to ask you to talk about this at FEMA. I, I hope they do. I hope there's that sort of moment of interface, Stephen, and invariably they're going to ask, okay, so what should we be doing about government now, particularly, so we have this older history and we have COVID right in front of us. What's usable in that history, distant and recent, to think about government restructuring? That's a good question. I, I think that we would both um, think of our interlocutors as probably not folks in FEMA primarily. Um, and maybe there's a different set of takeaways for a different Kind of audience. I think that one of the things that we explored a bit in the conclusion of the book is, um, you know, thinking about what this history can tell us about the, the politics of emergency, particularly in the context of mega emergencies like COVID or very widespread and increasingly challenging emergencies associated with climate change. And I think that one of the, the things about the history that we're looking at is that it gets us back into a period in which the problem of emergency government was, as Andy was suggesting, really wrapped up with fundamental questions about American democracy. Um, is it possible for a liberal democratic system to deal with um, these kinds of emergencies where you need a kind of powerful executive authority, you need um, really large scale management of natural national resources, and so on. Um, and I think that, you know, we've been dealing with what Kim Lane Chappelle calls small emergencies for a long time that are very localized, um, which you might, you have a declaration of emergency, but you don't have um, the, the invocation of emergency powers that really fundamentally challenge uh, our constitutional system or our understanding of the normal procedures of government. And I think that COVID is actually a good um, COVID was an event in which we were really running up against really basic controversies about what government has the right to do and what it doesn't have the right to do. And I, I think it was a surprise, as Andy said to everybody, that the Trump administration didn't try to do more at the federal level, but instead we had a proliferation of conflict at sub-federal levels about different kinds of restrictions, about the use of police powers by local governance, governments. And I, and I think that we're quite possibly entering an age in which those those fundamental political questions become much more 
central to our the politics of emergency. And I think that um, the may, maybe the book has some lessons about um, how we've thought about that and tried to deal with it in the past. Andrew, let me give you a chance to comment on that too. And I just, what Stephen's saying to me, uh, I was talking to disaster law scholar Kathy Bergen the other day, we were talking about the raft of Supreme Court cases that have come out of, out of COVID. And it's just that, Stephen. I mean, it's just like fundamental challenges to the power of the federal government or executives in states um, to create uh, it laws in the moment that react to emergency or to um, fill in where there's vacuums of power and take actions like mask mandates, like vaccine mandates. I, I mean, I must simplify the question slightly, um, but I've wondered this myself sometimes is, is is the kind of planning that the Office of Emergency Preparedness was doing, is it even really possible to enact in a democracy, particularly a democracy that's so fractious? And, and so I think that some people in this moment, too, have looked at the COVID response and said, yeah, that's, that's the price of freedom. You know, that's, it's not, these things are not going to work well, and that's the way it's supposed to be if everybody gets their say. So that tension there, maybe in some ways it's a sort of long-standing American problem, but I like to reinterpret it for this this particular moment. Andy, that's like not even a question for yeah, you. It's just no, but ideas, it, but it's what Stephen's got me thinking along these lines. But and it also gets to this big big question as well about the the, the authority and the role of expert knowledge um, in a democracy and in, in a polarized setting uh, in which you know the policy questions, um, you know, challenge certain kinds of forms of self-identity. Uh, and, and so I think that when we look back at the 1950s, we seem to see, at least from, in the actors, we're looking at much more faith that, you know, the, the public is actually going to believe what the, what the government officials and experts are suggesting should be done. Um, and so there, that may be one part of what we have to, to rethink about the model of emergency management we have right now is the extent to which forms of political polarization and distrust of expertise undermine the kinds of plans that are, that are put together in offices like the emergency, the Office of Emergency Preparedness. So let me just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch these days COVID calls kind of uh, around the clock. We have COVID calls usually at 7 p.m. Eastern time, but um, these days they're kind of in the mornings and in the evenings. I'll be talking with Marla Peddle coming up here in just a few minutes. So tune back in after the top of the hour. She is the principal advisor for school safety and resilience for Save the Children. So we'll be talking about children's health in the pandemic. And I want to thank my guests, Stephen Collier and Andrew Lakoff. It's really exciting for me to have you both in one conversation. Uh, and I really appreciate this work. And I hope, I'm sure it will be very widely read and, and discussed, the government of emergency vital systems expertise and the politics of security. Thanks to both of you for being on today. Thanks, Thanks so much for the invitation. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.